Good evening and welcome. I'm Carla Hayden, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to a very, very special part of our Writers Live series. To lead tonight's discussion and conversation, we are very, very honored to welcome Dr. Hubert Locke, Pro Provost Emeritus for Academic Affairs and Dean of the Evans School of Public Affairs of the University of Washington and a member of the Committee on Church Relations and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. I think we could give him a hand right now. Now tonight's program would not have been possible without the help of a number of wonderful sponsors. The Committee on Church Relations and the Holocaust, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies. We'd also like to thank our partners for tonight's program, Associated Black Charities, the Associated Jewish Federation of Baltimore, the Baltimore Community Foundation, and the Open Society Institute. As many of you may know, the Pratt Library has been the venue for a number of programs that have created significant dialogues in this city on very important issues like race, civil li liberties, and the Holocaust. The Pratt Library, as I said a few minutes ago, does not shy away from hosting ideas that create a dynamic and robust conversation and sometimes controversy. In fact, many of the Pratt special lectures are dedicated to presenting a wide range of ideas and information for the public. And we hope that everyone will believe and encourage spirited discussion and the idea that ideas are to be free and that everyone is entitled to an idea and to discuss it civilly. <laughs> so without further ado, I'd like to introduce and welcome a representative from one of our wonderful sponsors for tonight's event. Please welcome the Executive Director of the Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies, Dr. Christopher Layton. Well, welcome everybody. We're deeply grateful to Dr. Carla Hayden and the entire staff of the Enoch Pratt Library for hosting this significant event. In a day and age when shouting all too often overwhelms civil conversation, when finger-pointing and name-calling undermines the prospects of compromise and negotiation, when the media and the gaming industries celebrate the raw exercise of power and glorify the violent elimination of real or imagined enemies. We need to recognize, affirm, and recommit ourselves to those cultural institutions that embody alternative educational visions and cultivate virtues essential to the democratic ordering of our society, justice that is tempered by compassion, honesty that reckons with our boundless capacity for self-deception, an expansive sense of duty and a disciplined regard for the dignity of others, fortitude and perseverance, a willingness to go against the flow and to refuse the path of least resistance, and a humility that keeps us open to those with whom we disagree and from whom we have much to learn. The institutions that have come together to sponsor this evening's programs share a common commitment to civic engagement, a deep resolve to open hearts and minds to the needs of others, connecting disparate segments of the city and confronting those social forces that polarize and fragment our larger community. We are especially grateful to Vicki Barnett and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, with whom we have partnered on numerous occasions over the years. The museum's cons witness consistently rattles us out of our complacency, reminding us of the barbarism to which our civilizations are susceptible and the heroism demanded to protect the most vulnerable members of our society.
The Institute for Christian and Jewish Studies has worked closely with its Committee on Church Relations, first with Peggy Obrecht and more recently with Vicki Barnett, examining all the while how and when our religious fervor can be twisted and placed in the service of hatred. We remain committed to education that explores this challenge, backing it up with vigilant study and creative intervention. We are also grateful for, for, um, to Diana Bell McCoy and the Associated Black Charities for their participation, Tom Wilcox and the Baltimore Community Foundation, Mark Terrell and the Associated Jewish Community Federation of Baltimore, Diana Morris and Deborah Rubino and the Open Society Institute, whose programming on talking about race has inaugurated some vitally important conversations in this city. We cherish the synergy that comes from this unique constellation of organizations, along with the Enoch Pratt Library. And we look forward to new collaborations in the future. So please join me in gratefully acknowledging their leadership and participation. Now my friend and colleague, Vicki Barnett, who chairs the Committee for Church Relations at the Holocaust Memorial Museum and is herself a wonderful scholar and gifted writer, will introduce our distinguished speaker. Vicki, we have dreamed about this for many years now, and we treasure all that you and the museum have done to make this evening possible. Great to have you. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure and honor this evening to introduce our speaker, but I want briefly first to say my own thanks for all the organizations here in Baltimore that have joined together to make this evening possible, um, most particularly the Enoch Pratt Library and, of course, the Institute for Christian Jewish Studies. Our work at the museum is only possible on the national basis when we have communities of engaged citizens across the country that come together to discuss the great issues. And so it really is wonderful to join with you this evening in this um, venture. And again, I thank really from the bottom of my heart um, the organizations in Baltimore that have helped us um, create this evening and make it possible. It is my honor uh, to introduce our speaker for this evening, Dr. Hubert Locke. Hubert Locke is Provost Emeritus for Academic Affairs and Dean of the Evans School of Public Affairs at the University of Washington in Seattle. He was the first Executive Director of the Citizens Committee for Equal Opportunity, a civil rights organization in Detroit, Michigan. He subsequently became the Administrative Assistant to the Detroit Commissioner of Police before turning to a teaching career. He has served on numerous boards and councils, including the boards of trustees of the Bullitt Foundation, Common Cause, the Institute of European Studies, and the Pacific School of Religion. He is the author and editor of several books and many book chapters about race, the Holocaust, criminal justice, religion and public policy, and he has received countless awards for his engagement for civil liberties and human rights. More directly, in terms of our program this evening, Hubert Locke is truly one of the great statesmen in the field of Holocaust studies, a profound and visionary thinker, a consistent and clear voice on matters of conscience, even on the most difficult and contentious issues. In 1970, he co-founded the annual Scholars Conference on the Holocaust and the Churches, which in the decades since has convened hundreds of international scholars and really helped to establish this history as a field of research and discourse. He is the author of Learning from History, a Black Christian's Perspective on the Holocaust and Searching for God in God-Forsaken Times and Places. Most importantly to me personally, since the museum's inception, he has served on the Committee of Church Relations and the Holocaust, and he is an invaluable friend and advisor to my work and the work of all of us at the museum. So Hubert, thank you so much for being with us this evening and we look forward to hearing from you.
Vicki, I thank you once again for your most gracious introduction. Uh, Ms. Hayden and Mr. Layton, I thank you both for your warm welcome to uh, Baltimore and honored Baltimoreans. I am, I feel myself very privileged to be asked to um, speak to you this evening. Um, it's too formal an occasion. I really shouldn't do this, but I, it, it's my last appearance before heading tomorrow morning back to the frontier. And uh, I can't resist telling you my favorite story about the uh, chap who passed away, leaving a widow and eight children. Uh, they came to the church for his service, and in our uh, community, in our tradition, in the black tradition, um, the deceased is always brought to the church and um, coffin wheeled up in the front of the place, and the coffin is open during the service. And the preacher got up, and he began to extol the virtues of the deceased. And he extolled, and he extolled, and he extolled. The widow, who had been in a state of just almost hysteria with her grief, got increasingly quiet as the preacher went on and on and on, and finally got very still and hunched her oldest son next to her, sitting next to her, and said, boy, go up there and look in that coffin, see if that's really your old man they're talking about. <laughs> I've begun to feel that way after a week here on the East Coast of having Vicky's gracious uh, introductions, but I'm nevertheless grateful for it. I want tonight very much to be a dialogue or a conversation, even better, a conversation between all of us. Um, I have some things to say tonight, and some of them may border indeed on the controversial. I hope not, but one never knows. At any rate, um, we can best, I think, make use of our time together if um, we have the opportunity for a frank exchange of viewpoints and opinions. I'm very struck by the climate, the tone, the setting in which Mr. Layton uh, has placed this evening, and I hope uh, in that spirit that we can have a good conversation together. And may I also say at any point, if I, if I tune out, you give me a signal and I'll try to raise the volume. Learning from the past, ladies and gentlemen, is something we mortals do not do very well either as individuals or most certainly as nations and societies. Consequently, the well-known warning of Santayana that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it is a fitting epitaph for any period of history. It is especially fitting for our age. Of nothing in our past is Santayana's warning more true than the event, the experience, the horror, whatever word we use will somehow prove to be inadequate, that we term the Shoah, or more commonly, the Holocaust. One would think that a mass murder so huge in its scope and so gruesome in its consequences would so shock the consciences of humankind that in a post-Shoah world, we would be rid of such a monstrous evil for all time. Instead, it is almost as if we moderns have stumbled upon a new form of human horror and have been eager to replicate it ever since. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, in Cambodia, in Darfur, in Rwanda, and wherever else it might be possible to do so. In spite of this chilling uh, or appalling record, I think most of us still cling to the conviction that we can and that we ought to learn from the past. I think it can be said that this has been the case 
with respect to the Holocaust and the churches. To the extent that an anti-Judaic sentiment infected Christian thought and teaching for most of the first two millennia of Christian history, to the degree that this anti-Judaic sentiment morphed over time into, from a disparagement of the Jewish religion into a disdain for its adherents, and thus gave rise to the anti-Semitism that was such a fundamental feature of Nazi ideology and that subsequently led to the destruction of European Jewry, and to the extent that the Christian churches have come to realize and, for the most part, to acknowledge all this, then I think we can say with some gratitude and relief that in the past half century, the churches by and large have got it. That nearly every major Christian body has sought to rectify this grave in Christian terms, sin. The major Christian denominations have scoured their creedal pronouncements, their biblical commentaries, their educational materials and liturgical practices, and again, for the most part, have sought to eradicate vestiges of anti-Jewish thought and ideas. Historical parallels and comparisons are risky at best and frequently inappropriate. So let me preface my next, next remarks by saying if I were a credentialed historian, I probably would not venture to make any such comparisons or draw any parallels. But when one asks these days whether there are any other lessons that the churches have to learn uh, from the experience of the Shoah, I think there are several. And I think it would be difficult, even for historians, to resist the observation that in a number of uncomfortable respects, the social and political climate in our nation today bears an uncanny resemblance to that of Germany in the late 1920s and 1930s. The economic turmoil in which we find ourselves is the most obvious externality, the most obvious external similarity between now and then, between here and Germany. The Great Depression had a decidedly different impact on Germany than here in the United States, but one eerie similarity is worthy of note. It is what the social historian Richard Grunberger describes, and I quote, as the feeling of occupying a precariously elevated middle position that pervaded all intermediate social groups in Germany. And he adds, with an intensity that bordered on neurosis. Grunberger continues, the moral and political disorientation that had affected Germany after World War I made the Depression assume a significance far beyond the purely economic one that it had elsewhere. There was a mood in Germany of living in what he calls an int situation, an final situation, which presaged either chaos or an ineluctable transformation. Now, Grunberger is describing Germany as the only industrial country that underwent a political transformation during the Depression. Even though our own country was hit harder, harder in economic terms, actually harder by the economic crisis in the 20s and 30s, um, we did not undergo uh, a political upheaval. We underwent a change in political parties in 1932, but that was not the kind of upheaval that brought the National Socialists to power in Germany uh, uh, a, a year later. I would suggest also, ladies and gentlemen, that that was 1932. I would suggest for our consideration further that precisely what we are witnessing in our nation today is the eruption that Grunberger describes in Germany in the 1930s. That is, an eruption of political anger and outrage by a, quote, precariously elevated middle class. 
the intensity of which borders on a political neurosis. Unlike the United States with its two major political parties, historically vying for political power, Germany in the 30s had a welter of political groups jockeying for dominance. But much as we are in the United States today, Germany was also awash in multiple political associations and nationalistic organizations and paramilitary groups of all sorts competing with one another, as Ian Kershaw observes, in their activism and in their radicalism. Collectively, these groups were a haven for right-wing extremism throughout Germany. An inordinate number of them were seeped in the kind of violence that presaged the activities of the Nazi brown shirts, but it is the anti-socialist, anti-Semitic, anti-government sentiment that, pervades these, that pervaded these groups that I find to be of particular interest. These groups constituted large numbers of the German populace who found in them a focus and an outlet for their anger and their resentment. I think insufficient attention has been given to the growth and spread of similar sentiments in our own country today. The media are intrigued by the Tea Party phenomenon, uh, one that by its very name seems to suggest an effort that is more playful than serious, although it certainly isn't playful to those who are participants in it. The media tend to treat the Tea Party as a leaderless outlet for the anger and disillusionment of disgruntled partisans that is not likely to be of any serious political consequence, except as a spoiler in the re-election hopes of a handful of members of Congress. But latching on to the Tea Party sentiment, ladies and gentlemen, are various and sundry extremist groups, like the Oath Keepers, the Friends of Liberty, all sorts of Christian identity groups that are now joining with older efforts like the John Birch Society, to form a phalanx of political dissent and outrage quite unlike anything that we have known in our recent national history. Now, if there's one thing for which the churches in Germany may be properly faulted, in my view, it is that they failed to take seriously the rise of right-wing extremism among the German populace. After the Nazi seizure of power, and particularly after 1939, when Germany launched its military assault against Poland, it was too late to do anything to stop the impending disaster. It was in the early years, while there were still signs of a willingness on the part of the German people to resist Nazi anti-Semitic policy, that the, cat, that the catastrophe which unfolded after 1939 might have been averted. Victoria Barnett cites one German pastor who was part of the church's resistance effort against the Nazis and who, after the war, lamented the church's failure to stop the evil around it. He says, Before pastors and parishes felt the length and breadth of injustice, and that took years, he adds, the precious initial state, the precious initial state in which something could have been done had passed. This, I think, is one of the most important lessons we can glean from the German experience. With the acknowledged advantage of hindsight, we can nevertheless stress what a critical difference it might have made if the churches in Germany had responded earlier and massively to the rising tide of extremism in their society. At the least, we can say that if there is a time in a period of mounting economic and social turmoil in a nation when the voices of moral indignation and the insistence on justice and fairness and fidelity to the rule of law need to be heard, it is early on, it is early on 
when the social and political constraints first began to unravel. In Germany, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, when the Nazis were a ragtag horde of brown shirts running around the streets of Munich and Stuttgart, making outlandish claims about Jews and beating up on anyone who opposed them, in that period, the moral voice, the moral weight of the voice of the church might have made a difference. By 1933, after the Nazis were in power, the capacity of the churches to effectively counter the government and its policies rapidly diminished. After 1939 and the onslaught of the war, it was out of the question. As the Nazi regime increased its sway over the populace, this diminished power of opposition and resistance is well expressed in an interview that Ms. Barnett had with one of Germany's prominent post-war theologians, who was a vicar in Martin Niemöller's suburban parish during the <clears throat> second half of the, of the, uh, uh, the Third Reich. Um, he says, and I quote, the instinct for survival told every German clearly what form of opposition would be tolerated and where it became dangerous. That is why the experiences in the churches were enlightening to people who initially sympathized with Hitler. But the sharper the persecution of the Jews became, the more one had to repress what was happening to them? When I, I'm continuing the quotation, when I told people about it, this, this is Pastor Gold, uh, Goldwitzer speaking, when I told people about it, the persecution of the Jews, how often they said, please don't tell me anything. I don't want to know. I shouldn't know. Simply knowing was dangerous. One could betray oneself. One might express Without stopping to think about it, one could express oneself, one could express one's horror. That is why a great proportion of the people held this knowledge away from themselves. And after 1945, they could, in a subjective sense, correctly say, we didn't know, because they didn't want to know. That belongs to the principle of a regime of terror, and here they worked. Here in the United States, the perils of political extremism are great. The number of right-wing groups, patriot groups, that see the United States government as the enemy doubled in the last year, fanned by an anger over the economy and a backlash against the policies of President Obama, if not a backlash against President Obama himself, and this according to a study by the Southern Poverty Law Center. With our still vivid memories of September 11 and our preoccupation with bomb attempts in Times Square, we forget too easily the waves of violence in this nation that have not been the work of terrorists imbued with some distorted views of Islam. The Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, the killing of federal marshals, the assassination of a Denver radio personality, the numerous hate crimes and desecration of houses of worship are all grim indications of this domestic political pestilence in our midst. And to those who say that extremism is always present in the maelstrom, the, the maelstrom of politics and that there is as much left-wing extremism as there is on the right, one must point out one major distinguishing feature. No matter which of its many organizational forms it takes, one can always find at the core of every right-wing group a bedrock of racism and anti-Semitism. Every right-wing group has these two features in common, 
and that is why they warrant our vigilant, our, our continued vigilance. I'm sorry? Certain of my brush is broad enough? <laughs> I'm trying my best. The historians who immerse themselves in the details of the past come to know the many differences, some major, many subtle, that distinguish one era or one event from another. So much so that for historians it is a virtual truism that humankind never steps twice in the same spot in the stream of history. That may well be, in part, why humankind so seldom learns from its past. We keep persuading ourselves that ours is a new situation, a different set of problems or circumstances that no other people have faced. And although we then indulge in the pursuit of previously tried and often thoroughly discredited answers to our problems, we somehow persist in the illusion that in our situation it will all be different. As one of the many who has spent a lifetime poring over the record of German society during the Nazi era, two inescapable lessons stand out for me. Both, are, uh, both serve as warnings, at least for me, against assuming, for example, that with the election of an African-American president, uh, we somehow have achieved uh, some sort of racial plateau in this country. The first lesson is that a society, as I've tried to point out, a society under severe economic and social stress is one that may turn to bizarre and sometimes monstrous evil political uh, solutions for its imagined ills. That happened in Germany in the 1930s in one of the most cultured, scientifically renowned, technologically adept, religiously devout nations in the Western world and turned that nation, in which that nation turned to a political ideology that blamed the country's economic and social problems on a small, despised minority in its midst. The nation allowed itself to be convinced that only by ridding itself of this minority would it be able to regain its national pride and national order. And so in the space of 12 brief years, it set about making life for that minority so intolerable that half the minority populace left, but they were then replaced by a dozen times their number when Germany went to war and swept over the whole of Europe and the western portion of Russia. And with this vastly increased number of the despised minority to deal with, the Nazi regime turned to the one solution to its imagined problem, that an immoral logic and the technological resources at hand permitted, what the Germans themselves called an Entlosung, a final solution to its racial problem. The second lesson has a particular significance for me, but I hope we have entered an era in our country when it is a lesson that will have meaning for every American. We've been troubled by the issue of race in America since Uh, we've been troubled by the issue of race in American society since the nation's very founding. In the past few decades, thanks to the massive intervention of the courts and belated but nonetheless courageous acts of Congress, and now finally in a powerfully symbolic act by the American electorate, we've made enormous strides in overcoming this troublesome legacy. But only the naive will think we have entered a post-racial era in America. We've only to note the mounting antipathy against Americans who are Muslims and such draconian pieces of legislation as that recently passed in Arizona to realize that bigotry and ethnic disdain are never far from the surface of this society. 
And because anti-Semitism is often the canary in the labyrinth of um, tensions and conflicts that go to make up American society. I can't quite complete that metaphor the way I wish, but I think you're getting the point. Uh, because anti-Semitism is the canary we shall have to persist in and intensify our efforts to eradicate anti-Semitism and racism from our midst. It's a task I doubt we will ever fully accomplish, but I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, it is one on which the future of our nation depends. Thank you very much. questions, I would say, for about 15 minutes or so, and then um, we'll, we'll close the Forget, Yes, yes, I can. Forgive me for sitting down, but uh, I'm... I have, uh, you young people will get to my age one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Sir? A couple of uh, comments on your very thought-provoking talk. A uh, couple of comments and then a question. Brief comments. Firstly, I thought that uh, the attempt to present... Uh, uh, Jews as a victimized minority after, you know, so many years after 1945 is really far-fetched. The victims of today are the Palestinian people. It's the Palestinians who have been victimized, their homes taken away, their land usurped, and now you have the entire population of Gaza being held in a concentration camp. So the rich and the powerful, one of the most powerful military forces in the world, that of Jewish Zionism, should not be characterized as victims because of what happened in the Second World War. I think this history lesson has been overtaught, and the new documents which have come out after the war belie much of the propaganda which was made during the war. Wartime propaganda does not serve us if it is continued way into the future in an attempt to co uh, collect more and more funds for Israel and for American uh, Jewish you know, programs all over the world. This was one comment. Secondly, you talked about the Southern Poverty Center. I wanted to make two brief comments and then a question. Yes, I will have a question. The second brief comment is that the Southern Poverty Law Center does not see the persecution of Muslims in this country. The Muslims are the most persecuted group, the Islamic people of America, seven to nine million, are hounded by Zionist media every day and being put in prisons for amazing lengths of uh, time on extremely weak cases, fraud cases, bogus cases. So the Southern Law Center, Poverty Law Center, is certainly not a moral force. It is an agenda force. And then uh, now the question uh, I, I think, want to sir, ask is, if, the if question I want to ask is uh, specifically right. that uh, I would like to know. He's, he's asking his question. Okay, this is the question now. Yeah. The question I'd like to ask is, can you come up with the Fuhrer order published anywhere which would have to come down through millions of troops for the decimation of the Jews, just tell us without beating around the bush, where is Hitler's order specifically ordering the extermination of the Jews? Yeah. Don't yeah. give me the story about yeah. such and such of his men talked about yeah. it in a I understand session. your question, Give sir. me a specific I understand book your question. where I can look it up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there is a great deal in your comment, sir, uh, that we need to sort of sort out. Let me just say, with respect to your opening comment, uh, that what you accuse me of doing is specifically what I didn't do. I made no attempt whatsoever to make any reference to the current Israeli-Palestinian situation, and I, I did so deliberately. Because, let, well, let me finish. I listened to you, now please hear me out. I did so deliberately because I was asked to speak about the lesson that the churches can learn from the Shoah. And the question you raised, the point you raised, and indeed what you uh, suggested that I said, which was something I distinctly did not say, uh, is an entirely different topic. If asked to address that, I would do so, but certainly not in the context of making 
a quick um, uh, uh, passing uh, soundbite. Now, you, your question asks whether there was a specific uh, fewer order for the extermination of the Jews, a question that is often raised and that historians have wrestled with. And um, there are two answers to it. Number one, uh, Hitler gave a speech to the German Reichstag in January of 1939 in which he very clearly stated that if war breaks out, this is a paraphrase of his comment, but it's a fairly accurate one, if war breaks out, uh, it will be the Jews who will pay for it because they will, will be the ones who will be exterminated. This is, this is eight months before the Germans invaded, um, um, invaded Poland. Um, second, it is even, at least in my judgment, for whatever little that may be worth, it is even more horrid if there wasn't a fewer order to annihilate the Jews, because what it means is in the uh, intense, highly structured bureaucracy that was the German Third Reich, there were hundreds of people who thought they were carrying out the Fuhrer's will by implementing the final solution. So I do not think the presence or the absence of a Fuhrer order really matters very much in the final analysis. Now, next question. Good evening, sir. I enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. As an African-American living in this country, We always hear of the Holocaust, the Holocaust. No one mentions the Holocaust of slavery that is still going on today. And I think it's disgraceful that the churches get together and always push the Jewish Holocaust. And I think that the black churches in particular should push for reparations from slavery. Then I can cry about the Holocaust of the Jew. I thank you for your question, ma'am. I can't speak for others, but uh, what I've been doing in D.C. this week at the Holocaust Museum is speaking to a group of black educators, deans from the historic black colleges and universities, in the South about the kinds of common experiences which blacks and Jews have had and about the parallel between the experience of slavery as our burden of history with the Holocaust, which is the Jewish burden of history. So please take my word for it. There are some of us who are doing it. Other questions? Good evening. Bishop Douglas Miles of the Baltimore Interfaith Coalition. I want to commend you on your, uh, your talk tonight. And what I wanted to raise was I think we sometimes miss the full dynamics of what went on in Germany in relation to the Jews. It was not just Jews that Hitler targeted. It was anybody who was the other. And that's what consistently strangles even in this country that we pit one another against one another, and one group uh, puts itself as the only group worthy of being saved. After, after Hitler went after the Jews, he was targeting blacks, he was targeting gypsies, he was targeting anyone that was not of the Aryan race. Thank you also for your comment, sir. And let me say in response that One of the remarkable things about the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which if you've uh, not toured it, I urge you to do so, is that they try to make precisely your point very clear. They are anxious to talk about the persecution of the the Sinta and Romi people, uh, Roma people, the gypsies, if you will. Uh, about the oppression of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which was another religious body that underwent severe 
uh, persecution at the hands of the Nazis. Uh, about the efforts uh, to um, uh, deal with what the Nazis, the Germans, not just the Nazis, but the Germans called the, the Rhineland bastards, who were children of, they were Michelinger, they were children of mixed marriages, or mixed at least relationships, between German women and uh, African um, occupational forces from the First World War. So I do think uh, the museum has to be given its credit for trying to do precisely what you have, uh, what you have said. I'm a Holocaust survivor. I was there. I saw what happened. I paid the price. My family was killed. I barely made it out. And it bothers me very greatly to hear what was just said, all these questions. Let me answer the last question about uh, Elie Wiesel was asked, why do the Jews always talk about the Holocaust? After all, there were others in there too and died. There were other victims that were not Jewish. He says, that's right. The Jews, not all the victims were Jewish, but all Jews were victims, and that's why we were there. If one was a homosexual or he was a different religion or whatever it was, he could hide and save his life. I could not. I had no choice. I had to go through what I did. I'm a little upset about it. That's why I'm a little nervous because what I heard. The problem is that people speak about a about subject that don't know anything about it. To describe the Holocaust, what went on in there, and I was in six camps, what went on there, I would not even begin because I don't want anyone to upset to go home and have nightmares. They're unthinkable. They're too personal and too graphic to even to talk about it. And for people to come here and compare anything, other things, other events, and there were other events. I speak in schools and I always tell the kids, the Holocaust cannot, should not, and must not be compared. Because the only way you really know if you were there, and I hope no one will ever learn the lesson I learned. And to, for someone to come here and talk about the, is about the Palestinian or any other people, it was terrible if anyone dies. But we, my family just didn't die. They were murdered. They were sent in like you send in people in a slaughterhouse, turn on the gas, and they died. I went back to Auschwitz, and I saw that people were scratches on, on cement they tried to get out, they couldn't. And what went on there is beyond belief. And I'm really upset about the whole thing right now. And one question I'd like to ask you is, yes. is there anything that you could compare to the Holocaust, any genocide that ever happened that comes even close? I have often... Hold, hold on, please. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Now, one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that we have difficulty sometimes in these discussions is because we don't listen to one another. Everybody wants to talk. No one wants to hear. And I think if nothing else tonight, let's, let's at least try to listen to what one another is saying. One of the reasons that I avoid trying to make comparisons is that you can never compare... A, people suffering with one another. Every group has its own burden of history. And the burden of the Shoah to the Jewish community worldwide is unique. And of course there's no other experience for them like um, uh, the, the Holocaust. Just as for African Americans, there is no experience to be compared with slavery. It is our burden of history. And what we ought to be able to say to one another is that as minority peoples in a, uh, a, a society in which neither of us are dominant, each of us has our burden of history. And let's recognize what the cause of that burden is. Let's recognize the attitudes and sentiments that produce that uh, uh, kind of experience and work to try to eradicate them.
I, I, I happen to agree with you, and thank you for that answer. I just want to make that comment. For those that think that they had it so bad and other people suffered more than we did, I've seen children thrown against the wall, shot, broken bones. I've seen men sliding down on dirt because there were potatoes there and we covered them up and they wanted to get some. They tried to come up, they couldn't because the sand was soft. And they kept on sliding around and then the guards came over and we had to throw dirt on them and bury them alive. I've seen so many things that is beyond anyone's imagination. No one should ever compare the Holocaust to anything. Thank you, thank sir. You very, thank you very much. Sir, please wait to be recognized. I'd like to return to uh, the statement you made about a precariously elevated middle class in Germany and presumably in the United States today. Uh, we know that the, the German middle class was relatively small compared to our own, and the political experience with democracy of Weimar Germany was also uh, very limited. So when you look at the middle class in America today, where do you see the parallels to the German situation? It's a, it's a very fair question, sir, and I thank you for it. You're right, the American middle class numerically is, uh, is uh, much uh, larger, but I think if you look at its demographics, if you look at at least who we are told are participants in uh, uh, the right-wing extremist groups here in American society, you know, the, they're not coming from the kind of element that made up the, the KKK 50 years ago. They're coming from people who's, uh, who, who've been enjoying the uh, accoutrement of middle-class life in America and who either have lost those or feel themselves in danger of losing them. These are the people who are losing their homes. These are the people who are losing their health insurance. These are the people who are uh, losing their, uh, th their jobs at age 45, 50, 55, not being able to, to uh, uh, find um, employment at the same income levels. And that, I think, is the precarious middle class that parallels uh, their, their counterparts in Germany during the 30s. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir, at this point, but I at least want us to argue about uh, matters that I actually said. I have my script here, and I always write my comments out precisely so that if necessary, I can go back and read them. I never compared the Tea Party, as you're suggesting. I did not call it a right-wing extremist group. What I, this group. You can look at my, at my script if you wish. Let me tell you what I said, and I'll go back and read the exact language if you wish. I said, clustered around the Tea Party movement, which I think represents the precarious middle class that's angered and outraged uh, in American society, and I don't think there's any quarrel with that, but clustered around them are the right-wing extremist groups, like the Oath Keepers and the Sons of Liberty and the John Birch Society. Those are the right-wing extremist groups in American society. I'm, I, forgive me, but I think you—you've—you've uh, you, you've heard a different speech than the one I gave. That's all I can say. <laughs> no, I did not compare the uh, the uh, uh, the clan, uh, as as you are suggesting, with the Tea Party movement or with any uh, 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 such aberration thereof. The clan represented right-wing extremism in this country in the 1920s and 30s. The Sons of Liberty, the Christian identity groups, of which there are, are multiple versions of them, uh, represent that same kind of sentiment today. Both have at their core, the Klan did in the 20s, the, the groups I've mentioned, not the Tea Party group, but the groups that I've mentioned, have the, the same core sentiment today, and that is fundamental anti-Semitic, 
anti-racist, anti-socialist uh, uh, propaganda which they spread. That's, that's the point that I made. Yeah, I'm afraid you did misunderstand me because what I did say was that right-wing extremist groups have at, at their core anti-Semitic um, racist attitude. If you don't know about them, I urge you to go look them up on the internet. All of them have websites. All of them are very clear about their mission and their message. One, one final question. And frightening talk, and to ask if you have thoughts on what we as citizens might do um, given this frightening prospect. I, I found solace this morning when the Wall Street Journal um, denounced Rand Paul not for his libertarianism but for his comments on the 1964 Civil Rights Bill and the Public Accommodations Act. And uh, so here was a mainstream media drawing a line in the sand, which was welcome, I thought. Yes. But what can we do beyond that to, as citizens, stand up and do what the Germans, who should have known better, could have done in the 1930s? I thank you very much for that question, as, as I do for all the questions, even the ones where we have uh, politely agreed to disagree. Um, but, but yours is the good one on which I think to summarize and close out. And all I can say is that um, we all, as active citizens, need to draw the lines in the sand with, for example, the state of Arizona and the kind of legislation that it's just uh, passed there. And there will be other such incidents that we should do much more than just sit back and bemoan the direction in which the society is going but try in whatever way we can to express our outrage, our rejection of that kind of sentiment, uh, our insistence that our nation is bigger and better than that, and that that kind of sentiment will, will not be tolerated through your synagogues, through your churches, through whatever kind of organizational outlet you have available. I urge you to speak out. If I may, I would like to close the program part of this evening with simply an observation that I found myself thinking about um, as I was listening to some of the questions. I work at the Holocaust Museum in Washington every day. We still have a certain number of survivors who come in several times a week, talk to school children, talk to foreign visitors, um, talk to people from all around the world who visit our museum. And one of the things that moved me from the very beginning and continues to really strike me again and again is that these are people who, as you said, sir, really um, went something un unimaginable, went through something unimaginable, um, and yet are very committed, I think, really out of an innate sense of decency, a commitment, and appreciation for democracy, um, to talk about their experiences because they don't want other people to suffer. There is a, a incredible humanity that I have encountered um, in the survivors that I've, whom I've met um, that moves me deeply and inspires me. And at the foundation of that humanity, of their work, um, over 90% of our visitors are not Jewish. I have had the opportunity to talk to visitors of every faith from almost every country you can imagine. Um, and when people allow themselves to be moved by the encounter with the pain of another, I think that that is an important component of what Dr. Locke was speaking of this evening in terms of our obligations as citizens, um, which is not just to stand up for our principles and cry out loudly when we feel strongly, but something that's much harder, which is to recognize the humanity in each other and to really, really work very hard so that something like the Holocaust does not happen again. So thank you so much for coming this evening and for your engagement on this behalf.